Welcome to Living Bread Radio Presents, a program designed to teach and evangelize about the Catholic faith through various speakers and presentations given in the local listening area. Today's show features Father John Sheridan and his presentation, The Eucharist, from the Sacrament Series of the Walsh University Lifelong Learning Academy. Today's show was recorded in December 2013. And now, Father John Sheridan. Eucharist is a word that means thanksgiving. As we gathered last week to celebrate the national holiday of thanksgiving, it's appropriate that this Monday we should also hear about the sacrament of thanksgiving, the great gift of God to the church, the gift through which God has strengthened us with himself, but also it's a gift that we are able to give back to God. We provide God with the simple gifts of the earth that have been crafted for us by the work of human hands, and we give praise and thanks to God for all the gifts he's given us as we gather as he commanded us. The Second Vatican Council referred to the Eucharist as the source and summit of the Christian life. That means that everything we do should flow from the Eucharist, and everything we do should be directed back toward it. In a certain sense, our week is like that. We gather on Sunday to be kind of thrusted out into the world, strengthened by the gift of the Eucharist, with the great anticipation of gathering together again the next Sunday. So in a sense, our whole week is is flowing to the Eucharist, but also flowing from the Eucharist. There's that great image, I think, of the, the river that flows from the source to the mouth, and the Eucharist is both, I think, and the Church says so. So the Eucharist is, it should be the thing that gives meaning to everything else we do, as it gives meaning to everything that the Church does. So to understand the Church, or the Eucharist as a sacrament, we have to understand what a sacrament is, and I know you've had an introduction to the sacraments, and most of you have received probably all of the sacraments. Well, not all of them. You haven't been ordained priests, most of you, but some of and some of us aren't married. But we've in the group, we've all gotten one or the other. Out of the seven, we've all experienced some of them. So a sacrament, the church says, is a visible sign of an invisible reality which is instituted by Christ. That's the second grade in, uh, definition that we received, some of us from the, the wonderful sisters in our schools. The visible signs of the Eucharist are quite obvious. The gifts of bread and wine. These are the things that we bring to the altar of God. These are the things that are sanctified, consecrated, changed for us into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ. So why these particular images? Why this? Why bread and wine and not something else? Why not pizza and beer? I think the answer is that bread and wine are kind of cross-cultural. Everybody has them. It's not a particularly Jewish or German or Italian or... Slovakian thing to have bread and wine. Almost anybody can get bread and wine. Even the poor can have access to these gifts. These are simple gifts of the earth. But more than that, they also teach us something about the sacrament that we're celebrating. In his book, Jesus of Nazareth, Pope Benedict XVI wrote that about bread that it can become the bearer of Christ's presence because it contains in itself the mystery of the passion 
because it unites in itself death and resurrection. So the wheat is it has to die and be ground up, wounded in a sense, in order to rise into the bread. Even though we use unleavened bread, the, the, the grain that, is, that has died rises into a new thing, into the bread that we receive. Wine, he says, about, about wine, he says this, purification and fruit belong together. Only by undergoing God's purifications can we bear the fruit that flows into the Eucharistic mystery and so leads to the marriage feast that is the goal toward which God directs history. Fruit and love belong together. The true fruit is the love that God has passed through the cross, through God's purifications. Remaining is an essential part of all of this. Patient steadfastness in communion with the Lord amid all the vicissitudes of life is placed center stage. This is the way to produce good wine, something that requires patience, longing, waiting. And in the season of Advent, that's a perfect analogy, I think, also. So wine is often associated with passion, with love. And here again we see Christ, who out of love for us, endured his passion and cross, shedding his blood to the point of death. So bread and wine, though they are the simple and meek and humble gifts of the earth, they also teach us something about the Eucharist, about Christ's own passion and death and resurrection. So that's the visible reality. Underneath it lies the invisible grace, which we would say is communion. Communion means that we have unity with Christ because he feeds us with with his own self, and also we have union or unity with the church. And in the moment of, of communion, we are united to the church all over the world and throughout time. Which brings me to really the heart of the matter for this evening's discussion. On the night of the Last Supper, Christ united the past with the present and the future. To understand that, I'd like to look at the first letter of St. Paul to the Corinthians, chapter 11, verses 23 to 26. He says this, For I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was handed over, took bread, and after he had given thanks, broke it and said, This is my body that is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat the spread and drink the cup, you proclaim the death of the Lord until he comes. This passage from the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians is the earliest account we have in Scripture of the Last Supper. And it lays out for us some very important things about the theology of the Eucharist. This passion, this passage comes from a part of the letter that St. Paul is dealing with a number of abuses regarding the Eucharist. And it can be, I think, our guiding light to point to us how Christ unites the past, the present, and the future together. The present is the easy part. For Christ, the present was a celebration of the Passover with his friends around the table. The present was the anticipation on that night 
of his passion and death, which would be the next day. In a sense, we, as the church, we see that all is the present. The Paschal mystery begins on Holy Thursday evening and extends, even liturgically, it extends into one long day that is a three-day period until Holy Saturday evening when we celebrate the great vigil of Easter or Sunday morning when Christ rises from the dead. So the present, then, is Christ's Paschal mystery. To understand what he was doing there at that supper, though, we have to look to the past. The past is the Jewish context in which Christ is celebrating that great feast. For the Jewish people and for Christians also, the idea that we don't merely remember, like when you look at a photograph and you think, oh, that's a nice, a nice memory I have. That's not what remembering is when we're dealing with the Passover or when we're dealing with the Eucharist. What the Jewish people believe about the Passover is what we also believe about the Paschal mystery of Christ. What happened long ago is present to us here and now when we celebrate this feast. In a sense, we are swept through space and time to be present for us at the Passion of the Lord, for our Jewish friends to be present at the Passover, to be present for the events of the Exodus. So the past and the present are merged together even in our celebration. Christians call this the anamnesis, which is about making known the salvific event in the present, remembering or recalling Christ's mighty deeds in salvation history, but also remembering the ways in which God is saving us here and now. So says Father Keith Pecklers, my liturgy professor at the Greg. In his recent encyclical Lumen Fidei, or The Light of the Faith, Pope Francis writes these words about remembrance. When speaking about Abraham's faith in God, he wrote, As a response to a word which preceded it, Abraham's faith would always be an act of remembrance. Yet this remembrance is not fixed on past events, but as the memory of a promise, it becomes capable of opening up the future, shedding light on the path to be taken. We see how faith, as remembrance of the future, is thus closely bound up with hope. I love that he speaks about remembering the future. That's a great image, I think, of, of understanding this idea of remembrance in the Jewish and Christian context, that we remember God's promise, which is fulfilled in the future. For us, we understand that Christ's passion, death, and resurrection brought fulfillment to God's promise, but because we aren't yet in heaven, we haven't experienced the fullness of that fulfillment yet. So, as they say in the Italian, Ja ancora, already, but not yet. And later, when speaking about the Eucharist, Pope Francis says this, In the Eucharist, there is the dimension of history. The Eucharist is an act of remembrance, a making present of the mystery in which the past, as an event of death and resurrection, demonstrates its ability to open up a future, to foreshadow ultimate fulfillment. The liturgy reminds us of this by its repetition of the word hodie, or today, of the mysteries of salvation. So there's that whole idea again, that in the Eucharist, the events of the past are made present to us again. We don't remember them merely like we do other memories, but they are made present to us. Or in a sense, as I said before, we are swept back in time 
to those events. So then we see how Christ unites the past with the future in this way. Then another important aspect that we hear about in this letter from St. Paul is the idea of covenant. He speaks about the new covenant in my blood when recounting the words of institution. After the Passover, Moses encountered God again, and a new covenant was forged between God and the people. There had been previous covenants forged by God with Adam and Noah and Abraham, and another would later be forged with David. Each of these was built upon the previous ones. A covenant, Dr. Scott Hahn says, is not like a contract in the proper sense. A contract is an exchange of goods or ideas, and a covenant is an exchange of persons. In a covenant with God, God is giving us himself, and we give ourselves in return. We see throughout history that God is faithful, that he never goes back on his word. He never breaks a covenant. But every time, his people sin. Until we have a new covenant forged in the blood of Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who is sinless. So we have a new covenant forged in his blood that cannot be revoked. It cannot be undone. And it brings complete fulfillment, fulfillment to all these other covenants. So then we have the idea of the future. So if the past is the Jewish context in which Jesus was celebrating the Feast of Passover, the future is what I would call the ecclesial context, or the context in which the church celebrates the Feast of the Eucharist. Christ commands us in the words we heard from St. Paul, do this as often as you do it, in remembrance of me. There's an indication that Christ unites himself to future Christians at the Last Supper. And we see in St. John's Gospel that he even prays explicitly for them. He says, I pray not only for them, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, so that they may all be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And I have given them the glory you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may be brought to perfection as one, that the world may know that you sent me and that you loved them even as you loved me. Our understanding of the Eucharist has, of course, developed over time since the Last Supper. Words like transubstantiation and even the word Eucharist have been used to describe a reality that is indescribable. But St. Paul wants to get across to his people in Corinth that this, that what we hear about here is that Christ is truly present in the Eucharist. The church came to believe this very soon after the resurrection, and we see even in the encounter of the disciples at Emmaus that they recognize the Lord in the breaking of the bread that it's in the Eucharist that they truly come to encounter the living and risen Christ. We refer to this reality as the real presence, not to diminish the other presences that Christ uses or the other ways in which Christ makes himself present to us. For example, in the liturgy, when we hear the word of God proclaimed, we believe that Christ is present in that proclamation. Christ is present in the assembly. 
Christ is present in the priest. Christ is present in the altar. Christ is present to us throughout our lives in many ways. But we might say that he's present in the Eucharist par excellence, in a most excellent way. Even the words of institution that St. Paul references and that St. Mark and St. Luke and St. Matthew all use, we begin to understand that Christ was not speaking merely symbolically. This is my body. This is my blood. Christ specifies that the Eucharist is not merely a symbol. And in the Gospel of John, where we do not have an institution narrative, we have the sixth chapter, the Bread of Life Discourses, which I think even specifies more clearly to us that Christ is not speaking symbolically. So I'm going to read this. It's quite long, so just bear with me. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the desert, but they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever, and the bread that I will give is my flesh for the life of the world. The Jews quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Amen, amen, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life within you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Just as the living Father sent me and I have life because of the Father, so also one who feeds on me will have life because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Unlike your ancestors who ate and still died, whoever eats this bread will live forever. These things he said while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. Then many of his disciples who were listening said, This saying is hard. Who can accept it? Since Jesus knew that his disciples were murmuring about this, he said to them, Does this shock you? What if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit that gives life, while the flesh is of no avail. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. Jesus knew from the beginning the ones who would not believe and the one who would betray him. And he said, For this reason I have told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by my Father. As a result of this, many of his disciples returned to their former way of life and no longer accompanied him. Jesus then said to the twelve, Do you also want to leave? Simon Peter answered him, Master, to whom shall we go? You have the words of everlasting life, and we have come to believe and are convinced that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus could have said, Oh, don't go. I'm only speaking to you symbolically. It's really not that hard to accept. But he didn't. Jesus is quite clear. Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you shall not have life within you. It's to this passage that the church points to when she can say something like, the Eucharist is the source and summit of our lives because the Eucharist is what gives us life. If we do not receive, we do not have life. Master, to whom shall we go? You have the words of everlasting life. I think St. Peter really 
speaks for all of the apostles, and that's why I think in a certain sense he is the head of the apostles, because he gets it. He speaks for them the truth of the faith, that Jesus Christ is Master and Lord of all, and he fills us up with love. So let's go back to the passage that St. Paul said to his friends in Corinth. He says that Jesus took bread, and after he had given thanks, broke it and said, This is my body. These words, to take, to give thanks, to break it, and to give it, are the four verbs that have always gone with an understanding of the Eucharist, from the beginning of time, or from the beginning of the Christian time, I should say, even until now. If you look at, for example, Luke's description of the multiplication of loaves and fish, we hear that Jesus has all of the apostles or all of the disciples sit down in groups of fifty, and that he took the bread, he blessed it, he broke it, he gave it to them. This is an image of the Eucharist. And it's the only miracle, other than the resurrection, that appears in all the gospels. Something significant must have happened there. Something beyond recognition. Something that was so striking to everyone that no one could ignore it. And what happens, according to John's recounting of this passage of the, of the multiplication of loaves and fishes, is that the next day, all this, this whole crowd flocked to find Jesus because they wanted him to do it again. And that's when he gives them the bread of life discourse. You're looking for food that will last a short time. I will give you the food that will satisfy you for eternity. And that's what the Eucharist is. It is not merely human food. What happens when we eat normal food is that we digest it. It breaks down a part of us. It becomes a part of us. Um, They used to say you are what you eat. So if you eat too many donuts, you begin to look like one, as I do. What happens with the Eucharist is quite different. That we receive the Eucharist and we are consumed. That we are broken down and digested in a sense to become one with the church, to become one with Christ, to become his body. St. Augustine says, you are what you receive. And so he encourages them to receive regularly and to receive worthily. And then we have this last thing that I want to mention is that St. Paul begins this whole section of his letter by saying, I received what the Lord, what I myself handed on to you. Faith is something that we cannot receive and hoard for ourselves. Faith must be passed on. To understand the Eucharist requires faith. It's a mystery that we can't comprehend. And so to say that we can even understand it doesn't make sense. But to believe in the Eucharist requires faith. I received from the Lord what I also handed on to you. St. Paul received that faith. He heard the faith and believed it. But he didn't keep it for himself. Imagine if the apostles came to believe in Jesus and said, Oh, isn't this nice? We're going to sit in this upper room, the twelve of us, and then the faith would have died. No. The faith is passed on. Throughout the world, the faith has grown. 
So faith is both a gift from God, but also it's our response to his gift. It is a gift that wants to be shared. It's a gift that keeps on giving, as it were. If we believe that all of this is true that we've talked about this evening, that when we encounter God in this most unique way, that we are fed by his own body and blood, why would we ever want to miss an opportunity to receive him in the Eucharist? Why would we ever want to allow something to come in the way of that? Why would we not want to bring everyone with us that we know so that they too will experience this great gift? Just this past Sunday, we concluded the year of faith, where the the church has encouraged us to do things at every level, the parish level, the diocesan level, the church universal level, to strengthen the faith of believers. What is required in our time is a new evangelization, a going out into the world, not necessarily to get people who haven't heard the message before, but to get those who have stopped coming. We're told statistically that in the United States, the largest Christian denomination is Catholic, and the second largest are former Catholics. Something isn't sticking in their minds and hearts. Sometimes because of sin and complacency and other human factors, we allow the gift of our faith to become like water in a pond, that although it continues to feed our soul, no one else seems all that impressed by it because it's become filled with algae and muckiness. Instead, true faith seeks to become a roaring river which gives life to everything it touches and collects all sorts of things as it makes its way to its final destination, which, of course, is God and unity with him in heaven. The Eucharist, in a sense, is our food for that journey. The Eucharist helps us along the way as we come to encounter Christ more and more on earth so that when we get to him in heaven, we will know him as he is. We will see him and we will be like him because throughout our lives on earth, he has made us like himself and we have striven to become like him. So let us beg the Lord in our prayer and in our lives to continue to give us zeal for the message of the gospel and through the Eucharist to strengthen our hearts and our minds, to nourish us with the great gift that is his body and blood. For more information about the Walsh University Lifelong Learning Academy, log on to walsh.edu. We hope that you've enjoyed this production of Living Bread Radio Presents. For an audio archive of this program, go to livingbreadradio.com and click on the programming menu. This has been a production of Living Bread Radio in Canton, Ohio. Join us again next week at the same time for more Living Bread Radio Presents.